Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Five Rings to Rule Them All. I'm Sid Ziegler. We never know where we're going to find athletes and people in sports. We write about it out sports. Sometimes it's through the grapevine. One person tells another person tells another person. Sometimes we get a random email. Uh, quite often we find them on Twitter just searching through hashtags. I found Ness Murby because I saw either one of our contributors at Outsports retweet something that Ness did or vice versa. And, of course, I did a little digging and looked at Ness's Twitter feed and realized that Ness was likely part of the LGBTQ community. Years ago, we would be a little reticent about just randomly reaching out to people who you know, may have retweeted some pro-LGBTQ content. But over the last eight to ten years, that we just don't we just don't care because you know what? It's not bad to be LGBTQ, and and if the person isn't LGBTQ, it's not bad that people think that they are. Ness couldn't agree more, and when I reached out, Ness was excited at the opportunity to share their story. Ness tells me in the conversation that 2020 was kind of on their on their radar as. A, a big year to make some uh, big announcements. And I'm really proud that NAS decided to share more of their story uh, on this podcast. NAS has competed for three different countries, Canada, Japan, and Australia, internationally in three different sports. Uh, NAS is a Paralympian and is set to potentially make history next year at the Paralympics. Ness is qualified for the Paralympics. The only question at this point is, to me, uh, even though Ness has uh, an, an, an added question, the only question to me is whether the Paralympics are going to happen or not. Anyhow, again, I'm, I'm, I'm humbled that Ness would choose Outsports and this podcast and me to share the next chapter in their journey. And I'm, I'm proud to bring you my conversation with Paralympian Ness Murphy. Ness, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, first, let's just start off, just please introduce yourself to the audience. Good day, Sid. Uh, thanks for having me on here. So I'm Ness Ashby Murphy. I'm genderqueer, transmasculine, and my pronouns are he, him, and they, them. It is an honor to say that out loud. Is that the first time that you've said that in a, in a, in a, in a very public way? Yes, in fact, Sid, this is the very first uh, time to be acknowledging my true self, that my pronouns are he, him. Um, and I think that uh, coming out, well, there's always going to be a plethora of them but this is one that is really important to me. And I think, uh, you know, it's, it's about meeting the moment and in sport especially, it's time to start talking and questioning the orthodoxy behind gender identity and gender segregation. Why is this moment so important to you personally? I think where I've uh, been in my life, um, I'm 35 years old, and at the age of six, I was standing in the laundry with my, my gran, and uh, she's my, my, my closest person. And she said, Ness, what do you wanna be when you grow up? 
And it was just honesty, pure honesty. I turned to her and I said, Gran, I want to be a husband and a father. And that moment right there, you know, that, that moment when you're so honest and, and what comes back makes a difference. And she said, I know. And I wish that was possible for you. And I love you. Now, between the age of six to, to now, my world orthodoxy has been affected by preconditioning, by, by social um, uh, perceptions, um, by labels, by, by my um, inherent understanding of the world order. I wish that was possible. So I have spent most of my life being just me, just Ness. And at the same time, perpetuating the, the falsehood, the, the thought pattern that most gay people think the way I do, that in a relationship, there will be one person who wishes they were the other gender. How wrong could I be? So in 2013, for the first time in my life, I heard the word trans. And since then, it has been a journey of unpacking possibility. Because if we can't imagine, we think it's not possible. And that just simply isn't so. So it might be 29 years later, and my grandmother has Alzheimer's right now, but I am finally ready to say out loud that I am me, I am Ness Murphy, he, him, transmasculine, genderqueer, and I am proud to be who I am. I know who I am. And right now, I think meeting the moment is really important that I have the inner strength to say this out loud and not be afraid of the consequence because for me, and I am you know, just one of 7.8 billion people, but for me, my experience is I have spent time in that place of not actualizing. And I want to say out loud that this is who I am because maybe somebody else will hear this and, and recognize that just because you don't imagine it doesn't mean it's not possible, uh, that you are enough who you are, that you make a difference being who you are. And that's all I'm trying to do, be congruent, because my life vision is a legacy of congruence and integrity. And 2020 is just that moment. It's, it's meeting the moment. It's having 2020 perfect hindsight, I guess. And this is where we're at. And I want to stand up, even if it means standing alone. But I, I don't feel like I'm standing alone. People have gone before me and they have made a difference. So for me, it's a responsibility of paying this forward. Our tagline at Outsports is courage is contagious. And we talk about, you know, not being afraid anymore. But I have to believe that saying this publicly for the first time, representing Canada on the international sports stage, I have to imagine there, there, there is somewhere in your mind some fear or concern. And what's wonderful is that courage is the opposite of fearlessness. Fearlessness is the absence of fear. Courage is acting in the face of fear. 
And I'm curious what in the recess of your mind bubbles a little bit about concern with saying this publicly and potential ramifications. That's a really good point about courage. I'm I'm a huge advocate of um, uh, of, of perpetuating the 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 reality that bravery and courage is is not the absence of fear. So certainly there's there's fear of acceptance. There's there's fear of cognitively imagining worst case scenarios, catastrophizing. But what I realize it comes down to is. Is my desire to change greater than my desire to stay the same? And it is. I, you know, I, I, I stand by passivity isn't inaction, silence isn't neutrality, and that I happen to be strong enough in my self-concept to say this out loud. I see myself as a husband. I look forward to seeing myself as a father and I don't require anyone else's consent for that. And in terms of the realities, well, we'll get there when we get there. But I do know that no club is worth selling out who I am. No, no relationship is worth being incongruent and denying that if you can't love me for who I am, if you can't accept me for who I am, then what is the purpose of the input? You said that the 2020 is the moment, that now is the time. Why is this this year? What's different about this year than last year? Why is this the moment to share your story? 2020 was sort of something that uh, my wife and I had had talked about waiting till after Tokyo. And as time got closer, um, you know, in the in the last, uh, especially the last uh, year, I think what I began to realize is that there is no perfect moment. You know, life is what happens when you're busy making plans to, to, to quote a wonderful cliche, but it's true we can only control ourselves. And this burning desire for authenticity amid a world of chaos and uncertainty just brought about clarity. And I think also, I've been aware that this year that is 2020, the year of COVID-19, COVID, COVID, uh, COVID um, 19, um, you know, there we go, say it twice, because 2020, um, but, this year has brought about mindfulness in various ways for people. And something that I've noticed is that the global voice has changed. More of the smaller voices have become the loudest and topics are being brought to the forefront that should have been there in my opinion earlier. You know, I was really affected by reading about Castor Semenya. Now, I don't know Castor personally, but what I did hear about uh, in the, in the, the news and, and reports is this idea that somebody thought they could define whether she was woman 
enough. And I realized part of the problem that herein lies with a binary system is that we translate that into enough. And we are all enough when we are being congruent and authentically ourselves. We are enough. The difference is when you're trying to work with parameters and that language is getting confused. The language of the binary sports system of male and female is confused with whether you are woman enough. And uh, Let Her Run came out uh, um, with a campaign uh, that, that brought to light sex verification from the 1960s. Um, the IOC has um, rulings about uh, hormone levels. The end of the day though, hormone levels doesn't define woman. What we are defining is parameters to, to create some sort of a, a quote unquote equality. And when we don't ask ourselves, at what cost when we use language that doesn't encapsulate the, the real um, essence of what we're talking about, then we start to exclude. And there's, there's nothing more, in my opinion, damaging than segregating within a segregated group. The, the path, the journey of women in sports has been integral. It is so important that we don't lose the spirit of empowerment of women in sports. But at what cost, how many people do we have to turn away or, or judge? And this isn't about making the category open to everyone. This is about opening up the uncomfortable discussions because uncomfortable isn't bad. Uncomfortable is just uncomfortable. And we need to be asking more questions that will meet those quote unquote labels better. Caster really affected me um, reading that st um, the statistics, reading the feedback, um, people making it a trans issue. Um, <laughs> as far as I understand it, now one person, this is not a trans issue, but people are really intent on um, polarizing and, and, and that easy thing of labeling. And labeling is really dangerous um, unless we unpack that label to ask, what does that mean for you? I saw journalists refer to Castro Semenya as transgender, which when you have a sports journalist referring to a what we believe to be an intersex athlete um, as transgender, I, it goes to show how little education there is about this stuff and how little knowledge there is. And, and you know, when I look at the, the history of women's sports, women's sports really came about to, to create opportunity, but it almost feels like today and, and, and I think that, you know, there are some minority of cases, but I think a lot of people are starting to look at um, women's sports as being as increasingly exclusionary. And you talk about the, 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 um, the, the issues with the binary sports world. Do you think that we need to get away from a binary sports world? And, and, and regardless of whether that's a yes or a no, as you look at the landscape, what do you see as a or, or considerations for a solution? That's exactly um, you know the things that are that are uh, ruminating in, in in my mind and, and life at uh, in the moment, uh, especially with coming out and saying I am genderqueer and transmasculine because I am referred to as he him 
and I compete in the female class of the Paralympics. So that already blows apart the, the notion of what people are considering or what they understand to be the binary. And so I certainly um, believe we need to uh, remove the binary terminology, not to take away a competitive equality, but to actually better express, better um, include all, um, all of uh, those who should be eligible to compete, who are on a level, a level ground in a common space. Um, and that certainly doesn't mean um, uh, uh, removing the, the notion of, of the, the sanctity of women in sport. So coming from a para perspective, um, look, in, in, in the Paralympics, we get separated into uh, 10 quote unquote disability classes. Um, and then from those classes, you get separated into sports classes according to the sport that you compete in. So, right, first of all, we've got 10. So under that 10, in para-athletics, which is my sport, I'm a throws athlete. In para-athletics, there are over 50 sports classes. So you've gone from the Olympics that have male and female to para that has male and female, then 10 disability groups, and then in athletics, 50 sports classes. Now try running the 100 meters. There's 120 medalists. So doesn't that sound like we have broken it down into a really specific, well-ironed machine? Okay, so the reality of that is there has been a lot of thought that has gone behind that system. However, it still excludes some because there is no perfect system. There is always a trade-off. And when we say yes to something, we're saying no to something else. So even with having so many categories, I, as a javelin athlete, cannot compete in the Paralympics because they just can't have every sports class for every um, sporting event in track and field in the Paralympics. It lasts months. And I'm, I'm sure it would be a, a media nightmare because we don't really get that much coverage to begin with. So um, discus for the totally blind, which is my category, it exists within the Paralympics. I may compete for my country in discus. So I compete and I've uh, been in the top eight for several years now. And when I look at this system, there are choices. Um, I mean, you know, to, to, to nerd out a bit on you, um, Viktor Frankl, um, an Austrian neurologist, you know, he, he survived the um, concentration camps in the 1940s. And he came up with this idea of um, logos therapy, which is about meaning and healing. So the meaning we place um, on life is, is at our disposal, is at our disposal. And he worked out that one of the things that can never be taken away from us is our attitude. So in the face of adversity, in the face of obstacles, um, that we get to choose our attitude. And that is something that I realize I, I understood from a very young age um, intrinsically, um, being, the, being visually impaired with, with eyesight that uh, deteriorated um, over time and, and was vacillating as, as well as finding myself um, identity and, and expression not fitting within the boxes. So I realized there's this idea of typical and relative. 
And so when you come back to Viktor Frankl and his idea of attitude, come back again to sport. Now I could choose to spend most of my time placing my meaning on javelin and how I should be allowed. Or I could spend my time focusing on comprehending where can the system be changed? Is it actually feasible or what is the trade-off? And at what cost? So instead I'm a discus athlete. It is my second best athletics event. And that is where I believe there's this place for not just discounting people's voices, not discounting the, the, the trade-offs, but certainly looking at it in a more of an inclusive picture. And when we apply that to sport regarding the gender binary, possibly moving this into some sort of classification system would allow for greater inclusivity. It's not gonna be perfect. There is no such thing as perfection, but I would like to see a system that does not um, <laughs> quote things such as uh, with uh, Casta Semenya, this idea of uh, discrimination cited as necessary, reasonable and proportionate by those who are changing the rules and setting the standards and those who are entrusted with equality without asking the question, at what cost? Ness, you've competed over the years in three sports for three different countries, Japan, Australia, and Canada. What has that all meant to you? Yeah, that one often raises eyebrows. <laughs> um, well, I always liked sport, but as my eyesight diminished, I was pushed to keep adapting to sport. So basketball, my first love was certainly off the table. Um, Elite sports started in Australia with goalball and my team went international in 2006. I wish I could say that, um, you know, it, it's cool enough to be the equivalent of murder ball, but uh, goalball is a, a VI sport. Um, we do hurl ourselves on the floor to uh, block a, a flying basketball with a bell in it, but uh, it's no murder ball. So I moved to Tokyo in 2008 and converted to a solo sport. Now, that was also to do with accessibility because goalball was a two hour track each way. I found this amazing lifting gym with world level coaches who were willing to work with me. Ready to compete in 2009, Australia declined having me on their team. And so I became a member of Team Japan and I realized for three years, it was both an honor and a fundamental part of my growth as an athlete, as well as who I was as an individual. You know, this idea that the true essence of sport is that the competition is always with yourself. And it was really also the beginning of my connection with the proverb that strength comes from adversity. So moving from that, the 2011 earthquakes and tsunami in Japan had unexpected repercussions on our life and we had to leave. You know, that was hard, but the choice for relocating came down to Oz in Canada because as a disabled individual, I have to take into consideration the climate of disability rights, yet as a queer individual, it's also about LGBTQ plus rights. People are really often surprised to learn that Oz didn't legalize gay marriage until November, 2017. However, as a country, it has incredible disability standards. 
my wife's Canadian. Um, I'd lived in Canada before and had always been desirous of returning. So we made the choice. We immigrated to Vancouver. I began my career in para-athletics throws. And by 2015, I'd qualified to represent Team Canada on the world stage. You know, it's, it's not uncommon for para-athletes to change sports. And of course, the Paralympics are socially accepted as the gold standard. Visually impaired powerlifting isn't a Paralympic event. And so in setting my sights on the Paralympics, I really needed to adapt and change events. So whilst I then in Canada excelled in javelin, ironically, javelin isn't a Paralympic event. Discus is. So now as a Canadian Paralympian and, and discus thrower, I recognize I really wasn't lesser than for being a world champion in non-Paralympic events. It's all just about parameters and trade-offs and fitting in and that essence of adapting. And so my sporting journey has been a huge part of growing me up. I'm so proud and honored to have represented all three of the countries. And it's just, it has really meant so much to me. Have you learned different things from competing in each different sport? Certainly, um, goalball being a team sport, there's a, there's a team dynamic that you enter into and, and learning to anticipate your, your teammates' moves and, and work cohesively. Powerlifting became uh, a battle of personal willpower and strength and believing in myself. And then I'd almost say that para-athletics was the intersection of both of those. It's a solo sport within a team dynamic. And I think that that is part of what has really helped um, grow that, that, uh, that cognition of, of self-concept and, and my interaction with the world around me. You know, it's interesting that, that this is the first time you're talking about being LGBTQ at all, really, uh, even though people have known part of this about you. Um, but you've spoken many, many times about being having a disability. And I, I'm curious if, if, if you think in any way you having a disability has somehow in people's eyes masked the other part of you, that because you were disabled, that the LGBTQ part simply uh, was of little consequence to people because they, they, they see that you're visually impaired and, and, and in some way the LGBTQ part just kind of fades away. Yeah, that's, that's a huge part of also my speaking out now and being explicit. Um, you know, you've really hit the nail on the head. My, my wife and I have worked together in sport for 10 years. And as a visually impaired athlete in the most severe sight loss category, I need a sports assistant for every element of my sport, whether it's competitions or all of that training. And that person, that's my wife. However, yeah, there was, there was never a public coming out. We just got on with trying to do our sport and there wasn't any specific pushback, but there also weren't any explicit conversations, which leads to assumption and, and complacency. And this is where we begin to enter the world of being perceived by others. My experience is certainly that disability overshadows LGBTQ plus visibility in almost every way in my life and subsequently in sport. It's already hard enough for a lot of people to imagine a person with a disability in a romantic relationship. You know, you add that to the queer factor, much less the trans factor, 
and it really seems to create this short circuit. I find people immediately rush to simplify these terms into something they can recognize or, or fits within a comfort zone. And it ends up being really far from my truth. So my wife and I get perceived in various relational dynamics, but rarely, if ever, are we perceived as spouses. From her being my sibling, a carer, or even my parent, I mean, if I get perceived, I'm perceived as female and male and sometimes within minutes of each other. And it's entirely then about the other person's space and assumptions. So, yay, I'm perceived as this prepubescent boy. Woohoo, great for my, you know, transmasculine recognition. But then it comes down to my wife being perceived um, and, and then spoken to as if she's my mother. And that gets really rough. And it's something we have to work through. So the LGBT, sorry, the, the, the LGBTQ plus visibility needs to exist within disability too. And parasports can really be a culture catalyst for this because it has worked in able-bodied sport, but it doesn't automatically translate because it needs to be intentional. So this is where we are. I, I'm being explicit and I realize the importance of these explicit conversations in sport because of safety, inclusion, and fostering, fostering effective allyship because tolerance is really different to acceptance. And LGBTQ plus visibility is really different to disability. I fully believe Team Canada wants to be a good ally. So how we get there needs to start with some explicit conversations. You know, for the first time, the CPC has actually invited athletes to select their pronouns on the 2020 team database. And this is a huge and great step forward However, without open conversations, education and, and active allyship, it can really feel like a, a reveal yourself rather than a safe space, or at least it did for me. So Sid, this is where I'm at, you know, here I am, this is me. And I'm certainly saying, let's just talk about it. Let's make it an open and explicit and intentional conversation. I think that a lot of people find it hard to understand living disabled, I you know it's it's hard for a lot of us to put ourselves in your shoes, and you know for example you know we're we're you and I are communicating on on uh, Twitter we're we're typing back and forth and you know I you know I'll, I'll I'll plead ignorance I really don't I don't know how you're doing that having not lived in your shoes and there's just such little representation of um, visually impaired people in the media or in literature. Um, so I, you know, I think it's not just, you know, oh, he, he, he's trans, so he can't be, or he, he's disabled, so he can't be trans and he can't be this and he can't be that. I think a lot of people struggle simply to understand life as a, a person with a disability. I think you're you're right there. There's um there's sort of like the the mental glitch because we're not having explicit conversations, and that's also part of of um you know my my meeting the moment is about having these explicit conversations. I certainly come from um, a standpoint of all questions are valid. It's it's about um, educating and and changing. Um, perhaps limiting beliefs. Um, 
it doesn't make it wrong that someone understood the world to work this way. It's just what happens next when you're presented with the fact that that's not the only way. So in terms of being blind, I, I often get met with this idea that, for example, as you said, uh, Twitter, blind and technology do not go hand in hand, when in fact it's, it's quite the opposite. Um, you know, uh, uh, Apple, for example, um, they are my tech friends. Um, they actually have their integrated um, integrated within their firmware accessibility options, one of which is voiceover. And what's really cool about that is that voiceover will read anything that I interact with. So if I press on the screen, it will tell me the name of the button. It will read your comment. And this then also progresses to images and why alternate text is really important for the visually impaired VI community. Um, that alternate text, uh, you might have seen it, it, it comes up when you put in a GIF or an image on Twitter and uh, on Instagram. And you can then write in that box to describe what the picture is of. And so then for someone like myself using voiceover, um, when I then uh, press on the screen on an image, instead of it just saying image, it will tell me what that person has typed in to describe the image. And technology is just phenomenal for all of these things. I mean, that's just sort of interacting with uh, the, the social media world. You've got um, GPS that uh, uh, is, is read out loud. You've got audio description, which happens on television or live shows. Um, you've even got um, apps whereby you can uh, dial into them and uh, people sign up for this and you can ask a sighted person to use your camera to see what you're looking at. Um, so technology is huge within the VI community. Um, not everyone chooses to engage with technology. And so that's where we come back to the, there may be 7.8 billion people in this world, um, but each person is going to have their unique experience. So much within disability um, and, and the LGBTQ plus community, everything is a unique experience, but we can do things that make that experience more enriched. I can say with a lot of confidence that there's never been an out trans athlete to compete in the Olympic games. I am pretty sure can't say with as much confidence, but I can, I'm pretty sure there hasn't been an out trans athlete to compete in the Paralympics. Certainly not one that I know of. What would it mean to you to next summer compete in Tokyo now as an out trans athlete? Calm, very calm. There's something about it that just feels right. Um, it feels congruent and I feel calm. And that's, that's just my experience, my internal experience. And of course, there's, there's a lot of, you know, uh, dialogue and, and narrative that comes with that. But the overall is that I can sincerely say that uh, a good friend of mine used to, used to say, still does, uh, whenever you toast, it's to the future, which is mercifully veiled. And there's good reason for that. Because we don't know what's coming, but I know that I want to wake up every morning, uh, reset every moment with intentionality. And in terms of 
what it would mean for me. I think, you know, others have said it before me. And so I can certainly defer to, to someone of, of, of recent times, quotable times, Sarah McBride, the first trans person to be elected to um, government uh, as state senator. And she said, I hope tonight shows an LGBTQ quid, kid that our democracy is big enough for them too. And that just, it gave me chills because that helps put words to part of why I believe paying it forward is so important speaking out because everyone should feel like there is space for them in this world. You are enough, we are enough. There is space, there is enough space for all of us. Well, that is beautifully said. And, and uh, you know, I, I think that's a great place to, to end our conversation. I hope this is just the first that we have. And I, I really thank you for trusting me and trusting us to, to share your story. And um, yeah, we're gonna be following you. Hopefully we'll have competitions next year and hopefully we'll see you next year in Tokyo. Thank you so much, Sid. Um, yeah, I, I certainly um, can, can second that. I, I hope that there will be a lot more conversations. And I think in terms of leaving it somewhere, um, you know, we, we perform in the Paralympics under the agitos, and it's from the word, I move. It's symbolic of the Paralympic movement, which um, is spirit in motion. And I think it's about embodying all of us. So Tokyo's motto is united by emotion and spirit and motion coming together. It's time to meet the moment and it's time to move. And in terms of outsports, may we all ignite courage. That's what we're here for. So thank you for, for allowing us to elevate your courage and, and we will keep doing it for as long well, as you said, yeah. Thanks so much, Sid. It's it's been an honor, and um, and and thank you for for being so conscious and intentional in in your allyship and and support of the trans and LGBTQ movement. I really appreciated that last sentiment from Ness. I have tried very hard to educate myself, not just on issues faced by disabled athletes, but also trans athletes. I think I've become a better person for it. And I think that these stories cannot be told enough. There is such little education about what trans people and what people with disabilities go through on a daily basis in that sport. So it is an absolute honor to be able to share Ness's story. If you want to learn more about Ness, you can follow him on Twitter, at Ness Murby, it's N-E-S-S-M-U-R-B-Y, Ness Murby, on Instagram, at Tougher Than. Thanks again for listening. Come on back next week for more from Five Rings to Rule Them All.